Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Paget here and on this week's podcast I am joined by Hope Meng to discuss the design of monograms. But first there's a couple of things I want to share with you. So this past week I've taken a little bit of downtime from client work to focus on a few of my own things that I really needed to get sorted. They're tasks that have been on my list for ages that really needed to get done, but they're the type of thing that don't really make any money, so I haven't made them a priority. Uh, But anyway, one of those things was to add a case study for one of the biggest projects I've ever worked on as an independent designer. Earlier this year, I was contacted by the University of Cambridge to work on a Lego project for a virtual center that they just started called Cambridge Center for AI in Medicine or CCAIM. And I honestly never expected to get the project um, because I'm a self-taught Lego designer. And also this is one of the biggest and most respected universities in the world. So I thought they would probably go with an agency and they just reached out to me uh, purely to compare prices. But I, of course, did all I could to get the project. So as soon as the inquiry came in, I booked in a call. And after the call, I wanted to send over a brand new proposal document that would impress. The proposal document that I had been using until now is the one that I created when I was part-time. So this was the first big update to my proposal that I put together uh, since starting this podcast since being full-time. So it's been such a long time since um, creating a proposal. So I wanted to do a new one. I wanted to make sure to impress and I wanted to be reactive. So I, I gave myself only an hour to create something new and to help speed this up, I used the perfect proposal document from the future as a reference point. If you've not seen that, I do recommend checking it out. It's only about $60, which is a really cheap way to see how a big agency like Blind do their proposal documents. And they've actually just rolled out an updated and improved version of that, which you can find at logogeek.uk forward slash perfect proposal and that is an affiliate link so if you do purchase the product via that link you'll be helping to support the logo geek podcast at no extra cost to you Uh, but anyway i put that document together uh, shared things about my story my process how i could help them and about 30 minutes after sending that proposal i had an email back saying that they were happy to go ahead and i really wasn't expecting that Um, But yeah, obviously mind blown, really happy and really excited. Uh, So what I did is I I just moved everything in my my diary uh, so that I could get the project booked in and completed as quickly and efficiently as possible. So the whole project was done and dusted within about two weeks of that initial call. And um, as part of my case study so that I could really show this project off. I actually collaborated with an animator to create an animated video case study talking through the final logo that I created. And uh, that video was actually completed a couple of months back, but I finally uh, made time this week to complete a proper case study, which you can find for yourself by heading to logogeek uk forward slash ccaim and on that page you'll see the video and the uh, logo that i worked on uh, for cambridge university Um, but yeah i'm really proud of that project and hopefully doing an extra little bit of effort with something like a video i'm hoping that it will help to attract more projects of that caliber so uh, another thing that was released this week Uh, was an updated version of Logo Package Express, now version 2.0. And that's an extension for Adobe Illustrator that allows you to create a comprehensive kit of logo files in minutes. It was already an incredible product and uh, now it has some 
new features which makes it even better so it now has the ability to modify the file names and it's got a pantone first workflow uh, you can add padding around the images too uh, there, there's more new features but it's easier if you just go and check this out for yourself by heading to logogeek.uk forward slash extension that link once again is an affiliate link so if you purchase or upgrade via that link You'll be helping to support the Logo Geek podcast at no extra cost to you. And if you do want to get an extra 20% off, use the promo code Logo Geek. Now, Logo Package Express, if you're a logo designer, you need this product. It will save you hours and help you to quickly and easily create a very professional logo package to send to your clients. So again, if you do want to go and check that out, it's Logo Geek dot uk forward slash extension and use the promo code logogeek to get an extra 20% off. So anyway, moving on to this week's interview. Earlier in the year, I had an email come through from the Letterform Archive, which is a non-profit center where you can see a collection of over 60,000 items relating to lettering, typography, calligraphy, and graphic design spanning thousands of years of history. So it's worth checking out if you're not already um, aware of that. Anyway, in this email, there was a workshop called Creative Monograms, taught by Hope Meng, uh, which, as the name suggests, is a workshop all about designing monograms. As monograms and letter marks are one big category in logo design, I immediately thought, how great would it be if we can get the teacher of that course on the podcast to talk about monograms? So I reached out to Hope, I invited her on the podcast, and she kindly accepted. And after that, I actually looked into Hope's work properly, and it's absolutely stunning. She's been working on a personal project called the Monogram Project, where she took it on herself to design every single letter combination, starting from AA right up to ZZ. So in this interview, we speak about that project. Uh, we talk about tips for designing monograms. We also talk about a textile project that she's been working on. And as she's someone who just happens to do a lot of things, we end the discussion talking through some really solid productivity tools. So it's worth listening through all the way to the end. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Hope Meng. How I found out about you was through your work with monograms. Um, I understand that you've been teaching and you've also been working on a project called the Monogram Project. And I think this is awesome. So I, I think for listeners, would you mind explaining what this is and what's the reason why you started to work on it? Sure. Um, so I started Monogram Project about, I guess it's about four and a half years ago now in uh, November of 2015. And honestly, I sort of started it on a whim um, after noticing that, you know, whenever I sat down to begin sketching logos for a new client, I always wanted to start with a monogram. And um, just to kind of back it up a little bit, I work, um, my day job is as an independent designer and I do, um, I mostly do work in branding. And I also noticed that, you know, I wasn't really getting hired to do like the range of type styles that I was capable of or interested in. So, you know, I live and work in the San Francisco Bay area. And as you can imagine, um, you know, there's a lot of startups here. Um, a lot of design-driven companies, um, but you know those kinds of companies aren't necessarily going to hire you to do a black letter logo or type with like extreme contrast or scripts. And those were um, the types of styles that I was super interested in. And so I sort of wanted to show people um, what I found interesting and what I that I was capable of doing more than you know sans serif logos, which is like super hot in the startup world. So um, 
kind of on a whim, I decided that I was going to design every two letter combination of the alphabet. Um, and I sort of didn't really do the math before <laughs> deciding <laughs> that. So for those of you at home um, who are doing the math, that's like 26 times 26 or 676 monograms. <laughs> um, and my one rule was that I was going to design them in order. So starting from the letter combination AA and ending with ZZ. So now I'm about four and a half years into the project and um, I've designed like almost 100 monograms, um, which puts me in the, I'm at the letter combination DT. So this is a multi-year project, um, which, you know, has its own benefits and interests. Um, and I, and I feel like I've just grown so much as like both a designer and a typographer as a result of it. Mm, I, you know, I, I really, really love that you're doing this project and uh, there's so much more that you still need to do. The, <laughs> the, 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 the fact that you're only on D, but you've done hundreds, but everything that you've done is incredible. And, and I think it's already, uh, I'm sure it's attracting work and stuff like that. Because I really love what you're doing. It, it, it tends to be a common uh, thread uh, when I speak to people that they tend to show the type of work that they want to attract and mm -hmm. if you don't have that in your portfolio already then it absolutely makes sense to create a personal project where you can work on that type of thing because no one's ever going to hire you for something unless they can see that you've done it already <laughs> exactly exactly and you know it's also helped with even existing clients that weren't um, familiar or clients that hire me before they're even familiar with the project um, mm. because it gives them a body of work to look at and sort of point out like, oh, I'm really attracted to this style or I'm really attracted to that style. And so it helps you as a designer kind of narrow down what the client is looking for, which, you know, helps everybody in terms mm. of like success with the project. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, you mentioned that you love working on monograms. That's also kind of my uh, go-to thing as well whenever I'm working on a, a logo. Is I'm, I'm always drawn to monograms. They work so incredibly well. There, there's also always so many interesting ways that you can combine letters. So I think just before we go into the process side of things, would you mind explaining when and why would you use a monogram in a logo? Yeah, you know, I mean, I actually don't think a monogram logo is always appropriate. Um, but I do think they serve a really interesting function, like within the pantheon of logos, like, um, and, you know, maybe this is just my bias, but I just think monograms are both um, direct, and they have the potential to be expressive. So what I mean by direct is like, there's, you know, obviously a straight line relationship between the brand and the letter forms, um, because, you know, it's basically their name. Um, but, you know, it, so it doesn't require a lot, like a huge conceptual leap of the viewer. So for instance, like the Nike swoosh does kind of require a little bit of a conceptual leap, but, you know, monograms don't necessarily require that. And then, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, all of, or some of the most famous monogram logos, like GE or the New York Yankees or Louis Vuitton, like all of those monograms are so expressive. Um, and yet they, I mean, they're very expressive to the people who are paying attention to them. So, you know, designers and people who are interested in design, but then, you know, to non-designers, there's almost nobody could be um, offended or, you know, um, and so I think that they have, they, monograms occupy this sort of like unique um, region within logo design um, in that they're direct and expressive. And then, you know, additionally, they can be so timeless. Um, the GE logo has been used somewhat in its current form for like over a hundred years. And so that's why I think monograms are really interesting. And, you know, I believe really strongly in the fact that type can be um, expressive in its form as well as its content. And so I think that's like a really fertile area to explore as a designer as well. 
Yeah, yeah. I I really love working on them myself. I I recently, like in this last couple of weeks, I, I was working on. Um, I won't use the company name, but it was an E and a C combined. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was for a company that sells uh, like model trains. And there was so much that you could do. Like if you can imagine the the E, when you stretch it, almost looks like a, a train. It's got the train movement in there. Mm-hmm. And you can use uh, like the arc of the C, almost like a bridge. So you could, you know, combining those, I was playing with that kind of thing. And uh, you can easily, well, relatively easily, uh, come up with so many different concepts for combining letters to uh, give character and a reference to the uh, product offering but they can also be, be incredibly simple and it, I, I don't know about you I, I almost find sometimes there's unlimited directions that, that you could take it which is why I particularly enjoy working on them and just before again we move on to the process you did say sometimes it's not appropriate are there any things that come to mind when you wouldn't use a a monogram within a logo? I mean, I guess I when I said it, I don't think it's appropriate. It's more about um, how the client envisions their yeah. brand. Um, I don't think there's any situation where it's like absolutely not okay to use a monogram. <laughs> it's yeah, more yeah, that yeah. Um, I think, you know, sometimes when... Um, Clients just have a real, actually, you know what I do, I can think of a situation and that's, um, it's a project that I worked on recently and it was a huge international organization. And in that situation, they definitely wanted um, more of a pictograph or a logo, mm-hmm. logo rather than monograms yeah. because, you know, using translations across different um, countries um, that was just not in the cards. So yeah, I, that's true. I think that's mm. the only kind of situation I can think of. But yeah, I mean, I as as we've discussed already, I think there's just such a huge um, range of expression in typography that you know, if you're um, a smaller business um, that's you know really only catering to a specific language speaking audience, then I can't really think of a situation where it's you know totally inappropriate yeah yeah but you made a really good point then that uh monograms don't necessarily work uh globally um so if the company is multilingual Mm -hmm. a symbol would probably be a lot better like can you imagine if um a company like starbucks if the the logo was just an an s rather than the uh uh, symbol of the um the mermaid uh, yeah, mermaid. <laughs> uh, I, I think it might be a siren, but oh, okay. um, I think it would have been such a missed opportunity if it was just like a, an S symbol in some way. That's very true. But anyway, I, I'd like to dive into your process. So when you work on a monogram, what's your usual approach? Yeah, so it's actually changed quite a bit over the course of the project. Like in the very beginning, um, I would reference a lot more existing type because I think I was still um, in learning mode about like the nature of different letter forms. It was like kind of a little, my own little crash course in typography. I mean, I took, I went to art school and I took, you know, type design classes and the whole deal, but um, you know, your education continues after school. Um, So, you know, in the beginning it was a lot more like looking at existing type and trying to find the, relationships between two different letter forms or, um, you know, most type design is an exercise in some level of modularity. So Mm -hmm. it's like finding those modules and um, trying to create, like once I found those relationships, like trying to um, create my own form using those. Nowadays, I almost always start with um, um, really simple exercise in my sketchbook um, where I basically, I mean, this is like very simple and basic. I just draw out every way I can think of to um, to draw each letter in the monogram. So, you know, for instance, if um, the monogram is AE, like I would draw out like a cap A and, you know, one with like a triangle top 
maybe one that has like a square top and then one that has a rounded top. And then I would um, draw a lowercase a, like a single story a, lowercase a, and then like a um, two story mm-hmm. a. And then for the E, I would draw maybe just like a simple cap E and then, you know, the one that looks like a backwards three and then a lowercase E. And then I would just look for, to see if there's any relationships between the two, between each like column of letters that I've drawn. So for um, this example of the AE, I would probably notice that the two-story A and the lowercase E are basically mirror images of each other, but flipped. And I would start there and start doing sketches of A's and like flipping them over and kind of morphing um, both forms until it's like a pleasing composition. And then, you know, sometimes I'm also inspired by the work of other designers and letters. I mean, I'm, um, I feel like I'm just, uh, I have always been a visual sponge. Um, you know, when I was in art school, kind of blogs were bigger in those days. And so, you know, I would always read like all of the major design blogs, looking for visual inspiration. You know, Pinterest was huge for me for a while. And now, of course, like most visual designers, I'm on Instagram and just seeing all the time what people are um, like, all all kinds of interesting um, takes on lettering and different letter forms. And um, so sometimes what I'll do is like, you know, if I find a particular piece that I really like, um, I'll really try to examine what it is I like about that artist's work. Like, is it the the curves that they used? Is it like reverse stress? Um, is it, you know, what what is it that is interesting to me? And, um, you know, I'll try to like extrapolate my own design out of it. Like, for instance, if I see a piece and I really like the way the artist drew the letter F, I'll give myself a prompt like, well, what would the letter G in that alphabet look like and start there. Um, And, you know, that's sometimes like really fertile ground for, um, for coming up with, you know, new and interesting forms. Um, And um, yeah, I guess that's it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes total sense. And I think one of the most important things that you uh, mentioned throughout your your process is early on how you referenced uh, what was already there. And I mean, it sounds like now because of this exercise, you've been able to study each letter, what makes each letter the way that it is. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the, the benefits of this project. Totally. For those who are wanting to do... Um, something like this a project like this or or to work on monograms in some way mm-hmm. how would you go about understanding the way that the, the 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 letter should be because i know typography there's so many nuances so many tiny little things that can make a big difference how do you go about really understanding what that is you know that's an interesting question um i'm currently uh teaching this online workshop for the letter form archive on monograms and mm-hmm. um one of the students did ask that exact same question. And the way that we're sort of breaking it down in the class is like, you know, um, because basically what I'm super interested in is like, you know, we've all seen monograms that sort of um, like weave together two letters. And, and like, that's totally, I think that that's a very interesting style and that um, it can be very appealing, but that's just not what my work is about. Like, I'm not super interested in that. What I'm interested in is like um, monograms that kind of appear as a single glyph. So I want the viewer to be able to like tease each letter form out of the composition. Um, and, And what that is, is like, you know, an interrogation of each, of the nature of each letter form, right? Like what makes an A an A and what makes a B a B? Um, And like, how much of it can you remove um, before it becomes illegible as that letter? And then, you know, trying to walk up to that line and like not cross it. And so one of the questions that the student student asked is like, you know, she's from another country and she was basically like, 
how do I even know how to how, all the different ways of writing a single letter? Like she said that she hadn't, um, she had not encountered the, like the E that's a, you know, like a backwards three before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, that was kind of a stumper actually. It took me a minute because it is this, um, you know, that kind of understanding comes from just like years of looking at different letter forms. Right. And so, um, I mean, you know, I have a bunch of books that I recommended recently, you know, one of them is like the speedball textbook, which just shows like different styles of lettering. Um, you know, I showed a couple of like calligraphy books and, you know, there are digital resources too. Like I recommended that the students take a look at, um, sometimes when I'm feeling stumped on, you know, a creative way of, um, drawing a letter, I'll look at like the 36 days of type. Um, like they have hashtags for specific letters. So it's like hashtag 36 days underscore K or whatever it is. <laughs> and just sort of take a look there and see what, um, how people are exploring this particular letter form. So I don't know that I have like a really, you know, I have a art school background. Uh, I grew up in this country. So my, my education in design is sort of traditional. And I don't know if I have a really great and easy way of telling people who are trying to do it on their own, um, how to go about it. But, you know, I think that being a designer and an artist is really about just refining your skills at observation. And so over time, I feel like, you know, my skills at observation have um, become sharper and sharper. And that's kind of the only way I know how to recommend doing it is just like, keep practicing it, keep looking at things and sort of trying to break down what it is about um, compositions or letter forms that you like. Mm -hmm. I personally don't have a a formal graphic design education. And Mm -hmm. um, the way that I've always done it is I've typed up a couple of letters, I've uh, created outlines of them. And then what I've done is I've started to really look at them um, because until uh, I think that there was a point early on in my career where I started to create my letters and someone who was a type designer looked at my work and said, oh, you need to fix your G or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I I was so confused. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when he started to to explain about things like overshoot and uh you know lots of different things about typography and there's so many surprising little things that you don't always notice with your eye you you just assume like uh, an Mm -hmm. o is round but it's not (laughs) it's slightly different you know that it's it's slightly more square you know when Uh it's used within a typeface and uh, things like A's, I always thought early on that an A, you draw a triangle and you put a line across and you have an A, mm-hmm. but actually <laughs> that's not the case. You know, there's lots of minor tweaks. So something that I've done and listeners that are fairly new to typography, this would be worth doing for you. But what I've done is I say open up an A and then what I've started doing is drawing lines across. And then mm-hmm. I noticed like, why doesn't that line up with that? And you can start to understand, oh, there's lots of optical adjustments within everything and there's lots of minute details. And I think when you're doing a project like you are, you literally have to learn the A to Z. And I think what's great about the project that you're doing, unlike things like that, there's a lot of projects out there like the 30 day logo challenge and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But what I like about this uh, project that you're doing is you're literally having to study each individual letter mm-hmm. so many different times. So you could do so many different variations of it and you can really understand and have a very in-depth understanding of each and every letter. And um, to be honest, I should probably do that. It sounds like a really <laughs> good way of doing it. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, you continue learning like once you know, I've already completed the C series and 
you know, now I want to go back and redesign some of them because I thought of new ways to try to create a C or how um, I could, I could draw a different C, you know, and um, that's sort of one of the um, both fun and frustrating things about a, a really long running project like this is that, you know, you, you grow as a designer. I mean, I, you know, some of the A, some of the A series I still like, but you know, some of them I look at them and I'm like, oh my God, at the time I thought this was like the most amazing thing I had ever designed. And now it's like cringy, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's a great um, reminder of how much you've grown and uh, you know, I'm not going to like take it down or anything like that. Cause I think it's a really great record of what, what you were interested in at the time and, um, and where you were as a designer. I think it's really fun to be able to look back on that and see that like, oh yes, I have like really progressed a lot in those years. Um, one thing I did want to bring up is um, the, uh, some of the, the tips that you're giving about like optical adjustments and like some, some of those, um, you know, where for instance, an O is not actually completely round. Um, do you know, are you familiar with Ono Typeco? Uh, no, I'm not. Can you okay. explain what that is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a type foundry. And actually, um, they're here in the Bay Area. And it's run by um, a typographer named James Edmondson. And um, the name of his type foundry is Ono. That's O-H-N-O um, Typeco. And they're doing this really fun series right now on Instagram that basically breaks down all of those little weird tricks and tips for each letter. Um, so I recommend that you take a look at that because it is a really great um, and fun primer on how um, typographers um, have to make optical adjustments to each letter form to balance you know, the negative spaces, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to go and find that myself after this. And what I will do is I'll link to it in the show notes as well. So people can quickly and easily find it. Awesome. But that sounds really good. Really, really yeah. good. So yeah, I'll definitely look at that. I mean, someone could do with doing a poster of that type of thing so that you can just, you know, look up in your office and uh, reference it when working on monograms. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have been working on lots of different combinations and variants, out of interest, have there been any that have been a lot easier than others or more complicated than others? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the most obviously difficult monograms are those that don't really appear to have a relationship um, at the beginning. So, you know, for instance, um, the letter like the letter combination of like C and like W or V actually the entire C series gave me a really hard time. But, um, you know, when you think about like a C, you know, it's this sort of like partial circle and there's not even really any form to the letter on the right side where it needs to connect to the other letter mm -hmm. <laughs> so so that's that was like a huge challenge for for this entire c series and then if you on on top of that put like um so it's like this rounded letter and then you add to that a bunch of diagonals like the like a w or a v it just becomes like really challenging to figure out how to make these two letter forms um connect in some way and so, you know, that's what I would say um, immediately in terms of like what I think to be the most challenging. But actually, when I when I kind of drill down a little bit, like even two letter combos that have like a, an immediate connection can also be difficult because you don't want to design something obvious. Like what's, you know, kind of like what's the point of um just adding to the noise if it's not going to be something interesting, right? So like my um, letters or my monogram, H, H and M, like there's a very obvious connection in the vertical stem, right? Like the right side of the H is a vertical stem and the left side of the M is a vertical stem. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you it, it can almost be more pressure when you see that relationship right away because then you're like, well, I can't do that. I have to do something else that's actually going to be um, 
be interesting for people to find a new way to look at these letters. So kind of, I don't know, they can all be kind of hard, you know? Sometimes they're, they come, sometimes I'll spend, you know, many days over, you know, several days, many hours over several days, like doing several iterations of a monogram. And sometimes it's like, it just comes immediately. So. Do you, do you have a, um, are you always creating them from scratch or do you sometimes just take like a typeface, put the letters out and then start adjusting from existing fonts? Um, I always do them from scratch. That was another, I have a bunch of little rules I've kind of picked up along the way. Um, and that's one of them for me. It's like not using existing typography. Why is that? Is that just so that it um, pushes you so that you learn how to create a letter properly? Is there any, or is there another reason to it? I mean, I, I guess at the beginning, I felt like a little bit like it was cheating. And now it's, more like yeah I think I feel like it opens up the possibilities a little bit more for me I'm kind of you know old school in that I always start with pencil and paper um I mean I have an iPad I have a computer um I I always want to start with pencil and paper because I just think that you have much more flexibility with your hand um and so yeah I think existing um type just kind of fixes you to a certain um way of looking whereas I kind of want to make I want to feel a little bit more expansive when I'm first starting to interrogate those relationships I just want to take a really short break to mention the logo designers box set which is a set of six ebooks that I put together to help you through the logo design process. It's totally free to download and it covers the tools you need, uh, creating a logo design brief, advice for coming up with ideas, presenting logos, creating files for your clients and finding your own clients too. So you can download that for free just by heading to boxset.logogeek.uk. Now that is in exchange for your email address to sign you up to my newsletter. So if you do want to be kept up to date with what's happening with the Logo Geek podcast and other things I'm doing around Logo Geek, do head to boxset.logogeek.uk to download that and sign up. So that is it. Let's get back to the interview. Well, you seem to be doing quite a few personal projects. So we've, we've spoken about the uh, monogram project and we've we've gone quite in depth on uh, monograms. But I know that you've done a couple of other things. Uh, one of them is textile studios. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining about this one as well? Because it's kind of related and it would be really fun to speak about it as well. Sure. Yeah, so... Um... This particular project, Textile Studio, has a kind of a long history in that um, I, so when I was in art school, at the same time, I um, was an entrepreneur. I had, with two good friends, I had founded and opened the country's first sewing lounge. So it was basically like, um, you know, remember when like, well, I don't know how old you are, Ian, but... (laughs) You know, when they, there used to be like internet cafes where you would go, I'm, I'm, oh, like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. 43, <laughs> so you would go and you would rent time um, on a computer to surf the internet. And um, we had this similar idea for, for sewing machines because, you know, my friends and I, back in those days, we would go to Burning Man every year and we would haul our sewing machines over to each other's houses and craft together. And, um, it was just kind of unwieldy. And of course it's, you know, not really fun to like haul a sewing machine over to your friend's house, especially when you're in a small apartment. So we kind of envisioned this space where you could go and, you know, whole, you could rent out the entire space and, you know, you could do these crafting parties together. And so that was like my business while I was going to art school as well, which is like a huge, it was a crazy time in my life. And, you know, we had this very like young do-it-yourself kind of aesthetic and as a result of that our sewing lounge taught a bunch of classes and I took a quilting class and um I just like fell in love with the uh with the aesthetic with 
um, the process, like all of it, you know, it's, I have a really mathematical brain, which is kind of unusual, I guess, for an artist, my, my first degree. So um, design is actually my, my second career, or yeah, depending on how, how you count the careers, <laughs> had a lot of careers. <laughs> um, but, you know, my first um, degree was actually in economics. And, you know, economics is like essentially, um, it can be like essentially applied math. And so I have a really mathematical brain and I just loved how quilting is like really applied math. <laughs> it can get quite <laughs> complex. Um, and so, you know, when I was in art school, my thesis project was actually a set of quilts. Um, and quilting has always been this preservation of time. And quilts, especially if you're, familiar with the G's Benz quilts, they have like embedded messages in them. So it's like, you know, the material can tell a story, the way that people pieced it can tell a story. And so I was sort of interested in this like commemoration of time. And um, for my thesis project at um, California Colleges of the Arts, which is where I got my graphic design degree, I did a series of quilts that, um, like essentially, so I designed these books that went with each quilt and I had um, a program written for me that like tracked my mouse movements and then I stitched those mouse movements mm -hmm. into the quilt. So it was sort of like this um, relationship between the book and the quilt. And that always sort of like sat in the back of my mind throughout my career. I've, I've always wanted to um, try to like mesh my two passions of sewing and design and type you know and typography and all that mm, and mm. I've been thinking about this for like 10 you know it's been I graduated in 2007 so you know it's been you know over a decade that I've been kind of thinking about this and it finally kind of came to me a couple of years ago and I thought what if I used the visual language of a quilt right so like the triangular um, modules to develop this typeface that appears quite abstract. So if you use this like alphabet to write a message, it would look just like this cool abstract pattern. But then once you understood what the system was, you could actually read a message within the quilt. So Textile Studio is this, um, it's a typographic system that's built like based on the language, the visual language of quilt squares. And the intention is to, um, to make quilts that have an embedded message in them. And so, um, you know, I made the alphabet quilt about a year and a half ago now. And, you know, it's been in a couple shows, which is really great. And um, I've made some like smaller pieces that are like proof of concept for, for the embedded um, textile embedded messages in a textile and now I'm moving on to like much bigger pieces like I I have a um, a series already designed and I've um, I'm like halfway done with one of the quilts um, that are about like my thoughts and like my um, experience of the this like COVID time so it's like yeah. a series of COVID quilts um, hopefully I will finish them <laughs> I just they take a really long time and you know I work and I have kids and all that yeah so. <laughs> yeah well so, I mean it's it's a fascinating project are, are you doing that just almost as a hobby because it's something that you've always wanted to do or have you been able to find a way to uh, monetize it or use it as an opportunity to get clients yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, since it's still kind of in the new baby phase, um, yeah. you know, the idea is that, or the, the hope is that um, this is like my, or I think of it as my art practice, yeah, which is like a little bit different than my design practice. Um, I mean, of course, it all bleeds together. But yeah, the hope is that these are like collectible art pieces that people would want to own mm, mm. yeah well I mean I can definitely see graphic designers in particular like how cool would it be to have clothing or bed sheets or something you know mm -hmm. that, that has uh, a typography system within it 
but on the outset it just looks like a cool pattern but actually like you said once you understand the system you can then read it like that would be a really cool shirt yeah <laughs> so I can yeah. see I can see how it could be collectible and you can get cushions you could get um well you could get so many different things that uses that system and I guess you could probably license it to other people as well and and uh get lots of opportunities in that way <laughs> yeah that's sort of something I've been thinking about like how you know how do I want to approach this like right now um what's really wonderful about the project is that it's um, forcing me to uh, kind of find my voice. So I've been like writing more. Um, and, you know, as a, as somebody who works with letters, who designs with letters, I, I think like at some point you need to figure out not just how you want to say it, but what you want to say as well. And so yeah. it feels like really fertile ground to, and it's like sort of the beginning of that journey of, um, of like finding my voice as an artist, which is, you know, I feel, I guess that, that's why I feel like it's sort of the baby phase because I'm just kind of entering into that. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, I, I interviewed James Victoria recently. Uh -huh. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Yeah. And he was talking about this, how it's more about what you want to say than yeah. the final piece and you need to know exactly what you want to say and then then you can put it out into the world and uh um I think it's the type of thing that's there's a fine line between design and art it's more I feel it's more related to art that type of thing so it'd be fantastic for this particular project so I totally understand what you mean mm -hmm. now I I really like that you do have these side projects so you you the uh, monogram project that we mentioned the textile studios project I I probably need a side project like this. Now I know Logo Geek started off as a side project. So what what I'm doing now, so the podcast and uh uh client work, that was all on the side for a long time of a it, it was on the side of a full-time job, but now it's my full-time thing and uh I mean you're a full-time graphic designer, you're a uh, a mom, you're doing all these other things. Are you intentionally making time for the side projects to stretch your capabilities and learn and I guess be more creative in, in some areas rather than just churning out client work constantly? Yes. I mean, Monogram Project was probably more intentional in that, you yeah. know, I saw an opportunity to kind of stretch myself and I saw it as a place for me to um, work out different interests. Like yeah. Textile Studios just sort of feels like what I was born to do. <laughs> um, it is like a, it's not really a, it's not as intentional. It's like almost like a compulsion, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. sewing has always been um, like a great source of creativity and comfort to me. And so um, even if I wasn't doing this particular project, I'd be sewing other things. Like I often make clothes and, you know, mm. like I said, I love doing, um, I love making, um, quilts and that sort of thing but yeah this is just sort of a more applied intentional use of that sewing yeah. time like as you mentioned you know there are major constraints on my time um and I think maybe it was probably about a year or two ago I I made like a really intentional choice like okay you know I have all these passions um I have these personal projects that I feel really committed to so you know, how am I going to spend the few hours that I have in the day? Like, am I going to watch TV after the kids go to bed? Or am I going to work on my personal projects? And so there were a couple of like really intentional choices that I made with my time. Um, for instance, I cut out TV. Um, I used to have a glass of wine, you know, with dinner yeah. and noticed that, you know, that that was making me like tired or not very motivated, you know, after the kids were in bed. And, um, and so I cut that out as well. And so, you know, it's like, when you get to a point where you're juggling a lot of things, you do have to make that sort of intentional practice, just say like, okay, this is what I am passionate about. And if this is what I feel like my life's work is, then, you know, I have to like start walking the walk. Mm. Thank you for sharing that because, uh, um I, I don't know if you want to add more to that because uh, you you are doing a lot 
you you have your your graphic design practice you have these projects you're a mum like you said Mm -hmm. in terms of managing your time are you literally working through the day and then putting the kids to bed and then continuing on afterwards yeah I mean you know uh things are a little different now because the entire schedule is out the door since yeah COVID (laughs) yeah yeah you've got kids at home (laughs) but um yes prior to that it was essentially like you know I would work throughout the day and then once I picked up the kids which is you know usually I would stop working at 3 30 or 4 or something yeah. instead of like 5 30 or 6 like other people other full-time people might be doing um and you know make dinner be with the kids basically until yeah. around like eight o'clock and then you know it's not like I'm working every night but I would sometimes I would read or, you know, do other things that were sort of letting me blow off steam. But, you know, this, this work that I do is, I don't, it's not draining. Like it's not um, yeah, kind of like fills my bucket. And so um, it feels like a really good um, and energizing use of my time. Yeah, I understand. I think the main point is there's probably people listening that have always dreamed of working on some kind of project and might be inspired by the uh, projects that you're doing. And I think the important thing is that if you really want to do it, most of us can make time to do it. Like you've uh, you found that time in the evening where you could have been watching TV or you could have been, you know, just not really doing anything productive and you're mm-hmm. uh, using that time um uh to to do that i've i've also got friends that uh what they do they work early in the morning so mm-hmm. they see it as time that other people don't want so what they do is they go to bed early and then they'll wake up at say 4 a.m which sounds horrifying to me but <laughs> uh they they wake up at that time and what they do is they work from four or five a.m mm-hmm. up until eight and every day they have that stretch of three hours and uh the kids don't want them at that time partners friends don't want them at that time because it's it's ridiculous am (laughs) yeah um but they're able to use that time for benefit to to work on side projects in pretty much in the way that you have done and i think if you do have huge aspirations and really want to learn and improve i personally think it's the only way to do it i agree i mean there's no there's no shortcuts right in a in a design or an art practice like you kind of just have to put in the time I mean some people are gifted with a lot more talent than you know the rest of the world and they may have a head start but you know you still do have to put in the time and if you feel like you don't have to have the time like maybe examine exactly what you are doing with your hours through the day um you know I also have a bunch of I know we don't have to get into this if it's not interesting, but I, I do have a, a bunch of like productivity tools and that sort of thing that I. Oh, no, I mean, do carry on speaking yeah. about it because we're on this topic. <laughs> I'm more than happy to go uh, to go into it. We've got about 10 minutes left. So please, if you if you have some productivity tools, please go into that. I think it'd be um, a great topic to dive into. Yeah. So I for the last year have been working with a business coach and um, one of the things tools that she recommends is this thing that's called ideal work week and basically you um you plot out your entire week i mean i don't think this is like revolutionary in any way but you know some people may not have heard of it it's basically like you print out a little schedule of your entire week with the in half hour increments so it's just like a little chart that i made in in design and um and you literally like Black out all of the time that you are not at your desk or working. Um, and you literally fill in, you know, half an hour for lunch each day or whatever you're doing, like all of the um, major um, already predetermined spots in your calendar. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you plot out what you um, what you want to accomplish um, or what you want to be working on for each you know half hour of the day. And, um, the, you know, when I, I guess one of the tools, um, or one of the recommendations is to 
sort of leave yourself less time than you think it's going to, or give yourself less time than you think it's actually going to take, um, or a certain task is going to take. So like, if you, if you think that something's, you want to give yourself two hours to work on something like, you know, make some sketches for a logo, like maybe just give yourself one hour and, and, you know, that kind of like, if you do have your entire week sort of like plotted out, it forces you to be like really focused and productive during that time that you've allotted yourself. You're supposed to do it for the entire week, like on a Sunday night or something, but I do it, you know, the night before. So, um, so for, you know, Monday night, I will do it or at the end of Monday, um, at the end of the Monday workday, I'll do it for Tuesday. And I, I literally put that in my, schedule (laughs) like the last half hour is like scheduling the next day so um so you know that's one tool and then um I also do I mean I'm like a pretty um I have a very uh developed meditation practice at this point um I think all of those things help with focus and um managing some of you know the the anxiety and doubts that might come up, um, for artists and designers. Hmm. So when, when you say meditation is you just set aside time to sit down and meditate to certain music. I mean, I've, I've looked into a few different techniques for Mm -hmm. this. Is there a particular way that you do it? Do you just put music on and sit down and breathe? (laughs) Yeah, I actually, um, I use an app that's called, um, Headspace. Have you heard of it? I have, yeah. yeah. I've not used it, but okay. I, I think I might look into it actually because I think it'd be beneficial for uh, me because I'm I generally a little bit nonstop, especially since now. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm a parent, life just seems to be nonstop. Yes. Um, so I think it'd be beneficial for me to look into that. And I'm sure there's people in the audience that will uh, find that beneficial. Yeah. Um, I mean, I started with Insight Timer, which is a free app. And then, um, but the way that it works is like, there's a bunch of different um, teachers and um, all different kinds of content on there. And so you sort of have mm-hmm. to find what what works for you. And uh, what's really great about Headspace is that it's the same um, voice for all of the guided meditations. And so- right. I don't know, for me, that's a very calming, like, I know what to expect, because I have had the experience of like, you know, trying um, a guided meditation on insight timer, and then I don't like their voice. And then like, mm. you know, mm-hmm. two minutes in, I'm like, Oh, I can't do this. <laughs> so, um, so I, I do really like um, headspace for that reason. And um, they are sort of more guided meditation. So he usually he starts off with a little, you know, brief talk maybe Mm -hmm. a minute long and then you do you know a 10 minute meditation where he will occasionally prompt you to like breathe or pay attention Mm. to your breath or sometimes there are practices where it's like your body scanning you're focusing on particular points within your body Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so yeah i think all of that really helps um with focus and i mean it just has like these side benefits of being able to yeah. concentrate more directly. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a really good idea. Um, <laughs> you made me think uh, when my partner was uh, pregnant, we were doing hypnobirthing. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the first time we did it, it was with uh, an actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we got this CD, and the first thing we noticed was this woman's voice is horrifying. Yes. <laughs> it's so off putting when the voice is bad. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up the interview. We've gone into loads of different things. So uh, monograms, and I wasn't expecting to go into like productivity stuff. But I think that's yeah. been really <laughs> useful. But I think we'll wrap up the interview now. But um, thank you so much for coming on. It's It's been um, really great to speak with you. And uh, I'm sure listeners will have got a lot from this. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ian. If you enjoyed this episode, let myself and Hope know by giving us a shout out on social media. I would absolutely love that. And I know that Hope would too. So 
If you enjoyed the episode, please let us know. And if you want to learn more about Hope Meng, head to her website, hopemeng.com, which has links to all of the projects that we spoke about in the interview. Alternatively, head to the show notes for this episode where you'll find links to all of the projects, any books or resources that we mentioned, as well as a full transcription of the interview. So to find the show notes, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 92. And if you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me and almost 10,000 logo designers from around the world, Join us in the Logo Geek community on Facebook. Totally free to join and it's so incredibly active. So if you have any questions, need feedback or want any support in any way, you should hopefully find it within the Logo Geek community. So to find out, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or do a search on Facebook for Logo Geek and you should find it. So that is it for this week, but I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.